another podcast from Corey O'Connor. Corey Talks. On the agenda today, a Freedom of Information request reveals trouble was known early on the Triple O emergency service number during last November's Optus network outage. Australia advances towards a cashless society. Biden's campaign cash war chest is massive. How long does COVID immunity last? And have you ever heard of the term buzzers? Keep listening. First, though, just 24 days into the new year and right-wing entitled shit-spreading media organisations in Australia were jumping with joy for their first major attempt at a gotcha moment in a bid to denigrate the federal government. The Albanese government has announced an overhaul of Stage 3 tax cuts. Firstly, it was headlines of broken promises. Then it became a backflip. What it is, is more money in the pockets of hard-working Australians and less to multi-millionaires and billionaires. In fact, some opposition politicians have indicated that if they were to win the next federal election, they'd take away the tax cuts to those who are not filthy rich. Because as we all know, only the rich can manage money. It would seem like a no-brainer and re-election of the Labour Party, but we live in a world now where lies and misinformation are more appealing than facts. Worse still, some people supporting the removal of tax cuts that would benefit them in sporting parlance and own goal. Even the ABC, Australia's national broadcaster, got on the backflip bandwagon, despite the fact that, according to Federal Treasurer Jim Chalmers, he expected new tax cuts would mean at least an extra $800 for most Australians, while the benefit for the highest earner will be halved. Either the rich believe they personally hold the country together, you know, by the very fabric of our nation, or that they're just interested in what it means means to their investments and bank balances. I'd say it's the latter. Chalmers said the government changed its view of the cuts as it found a better way to provide cost of living relief to more Australians. The Liberal Party responded with outrage at the Prime Minister breaking a pre-election promise not to touch the tax cuts, which were a signature reform of the then Liberal government. Bit rich of these entitled wankers in the Liberal National Party coalition who say they will unpick the Stage 3 tax cut changes when they get into power again. The hypocrisy, the stupidity, the blatant do as I say, not as I do. This hate the grifting coalition have for low and middle income earning Australians is appalling. That should go without saying, but sadly we do live in times where these things need to be said and hopefully will sink in. I am not personally pro-whatever-the-Labour-Party says. I think they've made mistakes, one large one being the commitment to build these multi-billion dollar submarines that the former Morrison government initiated. So I'm really sick to death of having to justify my position. I look at the alternative and I don't like what I see. You see, I've put some thought into it, not just react to talking points or confected outrage. I wish more Australians did the same. Right on cue, mainstream media were trying to cut Prime Minister Albany easy down. Things have changed since Labor won power on May 21, 2022. I don't recall ever reading that future governments must hold on to policies made by former governments. And if better ways to achieve better results for all Australians is found, it would show poor governing skills not to make changes. Corey Talks Four years into the pandemic, and Australia is continuing to see large case numbers like other nations. There were around 860,000 COVID infections last year. Already in 2024, there are 30,000 cases. This figure is no doubt being generous. I'll put a link in the show notes to a story from ABC News Australia where the question is asked, how long do we have immunity after a COVID infection? The authors of a new study found a previous infection provided protective immunity against 
reinfection with the ancestral alpha, beta and delta variants of 85.2% at four weeks. Protection against reinfection with these variants remained high, 78.6%, at 40 weeks or just over nine months. There's a lot to take in and if you are interested in reading more, as I said, there's a link in the show notes. This is the Corey Talks podcast with Corey O'Connor. Freedom of information documents obtained by the national broadcaster, the ABC, shows that concerns about the Optus Mobile Triple O calls emerged early during last November's outage. Optus and the federal government spent hours during last year's unprecedented outage telling the public that triple O calls from mobile should work despite mounting evidence to the contrary. Last November's network crash caused confusion and chaos for 10 million Australians and thousands of Aussie businesses, disrupting everything from government services to a city's public transport network. The ABC obtained new documents under freedom of information laws which revealed the scramble inside the Albanese government to find out what was happening. One of the greatest concerns was what was happening to calls being made by people urgently trying to reach emergency services due to serious medical episodes or life-threatening incidents. During an outage, emergency calls to triple O are still meant to go through smoothly using other networks, which is known as emergency campon. However, the ABC has revealed that Early in the day, inside the government and the regulator, concerns were being raised about whether this backup system was actually working. It all started around 4am on that fateful morning in November, when all of Optus's internet, landline and mobile services went offline. An hour and a half later, Optus put out a three-line statement which said its customers can still call emergency services. It said, I quote, Optus is aware of an issue that may be impacting some of our mobile and internet customers. In case of emergency, customers can still call triple O. But by about 20 to 8 that morning, calls were coming through to ABC's Radio National program, which would indicate that that was not the case. After hearing from the host that one of the program's callers had told the ABC he was unable to ring an ambulance. Federal Communications Minister Michelle Rowland said that she believed emergency services are working, but that piece of information was concerning and she promised to follow up. Just before 10am, emails reveal that staff inside the regulator, the Australian Communications and Media Authority, that's ACMA, and the Communications Department were growing increasingly worried that triple O calls weren't always working. A senior manager from the agency which runs triple O in Victoria sent a warning to ACMA, which said, as discussed, Victorian Optus customers appear unable to access triple O and the 112 number, which is the international emergency number due to this morning's outage. The National Emergency Call Service overseen by ACMA has a fail-safe which allows customers to access other provider networks for this service. It appears that this fail-safe had not been activated in Victoria. Not long after, Telstra was telling the government that some triple O calls were in fact failing. The rival telco was suggesting that the Federal Communications Minister get in contact with Optus to find out what exactly was going on. Then by 10.40, the CEO of Optus publicly said that triple O mobile calls will work. That's when Optus CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin began doing radio interviews. She told the ABC, despite the network being down, triple O calls from Optus Mobiles will work. 
She said you can make a call to Triple O from your mobile phone, but landlines aren't working. After that Optus PR disaster, by 11am, the communications minister stepped up. With evidence mounting about Triple O calls failing, Michelle Rowland gave a press conference in which she heaps pressure on Optus to provide more information about what's going on, telling the company to step up. However, despite the concerns raised earlier with her by Telstra, she doesn't tell the public that some Optus mobiles are having problems connecting to Triple O. In fact, she reassured people that if they dialed Triple O from an Optus mobile, the call will go through. I understand the point of view of not wanting to panic people unnecessarily, but Michelle Rowland should not have said what she said. Telstra then sent a blunt email to the communications regulator where it lays out what Optus has told emergency services and the public about triple O calls and how that information is contradicted by Telstra's own testing. It wasn't until just before 1pm, almost nine hours after the outage began, that Optus said its services are gradually being restored. For the first time, the telco contradicted its earlier advice. They admitted that there is a problem with some mobiles making emergency calls. Telco expert Mark Gregory said at the time the failure to let the public know the triple O system was not working smoothly earlier in the day shows systemic failure. He told the ABC many hours passed before Optus actually came forward and made that information available. There's more step-by-step details of what happened throughout that day in November with the Optus outage. I've put a link in the show notes. But by 4pm that day, about 12 hours after the outage began, Optus declared that the outage was all but over. A Senate inquiry would later be told that then-CEO Kelly Bayer-Rosmarin, 228 triple O calls were unable to go through. The company said it had done welfare checks on all of the callers. However, when the ABC checked, it seems like not everyone was included in that list of welfare checks. Now, details from the story I'm about to present you came out in October last year. But this is something just recently I was discussing with a friend. He sent me a text message and a picture of a $5 Australian commemorative coin to commemorate the bicentennial year in 1988. And I said, I'm not seen it. At least I don't think I've seen it. I mean, it was a long time ago, almost 40 years, but still I wasn't familiar with that. And it got on to talking about a a cashless society. Now, my friend, he collects coins and I'm not sure whether he is just not convinced that a cashless society is the way to go or whether it's more about what the impact would be on coin collecting. But this story from Nine News Australia says that Australia's transition to a cashless society is inevitable and it could happen by the end of the decade. RMIT Associate Professor in Finance, Dr. Angel Zhang, said the shift to digital wallets and buy now, pay later was now evident not just in big cities, but also in remote areas of Australia. Zhang said that the shift towards a cashless society in Australia isn't just a possibility, it's already well underway. For many of us, we all know that the convenience of digital transaction, it's just become so irresistible for consumers and businesses alike and has led to the sector eclipsing traditional payment methods. According to a report by the Australian Banking Association, at the end of 2022, cash only accounted for just 13% of consumer payments in Australia. In 2007, that figure was 70%. 
About 40% of us are now comfortable leaving home without actual wallets or even credit and debit cards. Now, the use of digital wallet payments on smartphones and watches has soared from $746 million in 2018 to over, now steal yourself on this, in 2022, over $93 billion. Zhang's estimate that Australia will enter into a cashless society by 2030 is conservative, with the Commonwealth Bank predicting it will happen as soon as 2026. Now, think about that, it's just two years away. But it doesn't mean that cash will disappear entirely. Zhang said that it doesn't mean that there'll be no banknotes about. No one should be panicking that your banknotes will no longer carry value. If you look at the statistics about banknotes in circulation, it actually remains at around 20%, according to the report, over the years. The meaning of cashless society is more about the way we transact. It adds to the convenience of our day-to-day lives, and personally, I think also safety. Unless you're the sort of person who makes note of all the banknote serial numbers, if your money is stolen, there's nothing you can do about it. And coins even less so. And of course, I realise that that doesn't make the digital world perfect. I mean, with the amount of scams that we've got going around, it just means that these systems need to be more secure and there needs to be like an education program to bring people who are still either confused or sitting on the fence about whether they want to be part of this cashless society. And I understand, but there will also be those people who it doesn't matter what you say, they will not be for this. They want to stick with the notes and the coins. Does anyone remember checks? We don't have them so much in Australia anymore. I know in America, like if you receive a welfare check, that's similar to a payment from Australia's Centrelink, that goes directly into your bank account. Whereas in America, you receive a check. Medicare, I think here in Australia, was the last government organization that offered checks as refund that they would send it out to you. Now you need to provide your bank account details and that money, your return on what you paid, because you know, we've got a proper health system here in Australia that will be put directly back into your bank account. And of course, there's no waiting for that, what, three to five days for the check to clear. New regulations for digital payment providers were unveiled by the federal government by Treasurer Jim Chalmers last year in a bid to make it more secure and trustworthy. So it will subject the buy now, pay later programs and digital wallet service providers like Apple Pay and Google Pay to the same oversight by the Reserve Bank of Australia as traditional credit and debit cards. The regulations will require providers to meet clear standards for security measures, data protection and dispute resolution to give Australians confidence their funds and personal information are safeguarded. And this is very important if you want to convince those who are still on the fence about it. The corepay.net website, which I'm not familiar with, uh, I was looking up, I was trying to find out, you know, how many countries around the world are going towards uh, a cashless society. And I'll get to that in a moment, but there's a list of pros and cons. One of the pros is, of course, of a cashless society is convenience. There's a lower crime rate, going cashless would mean there'd be no tangible money to steal, reducing crime. Decreased money laundering, and one that we probably thought more of during the pandemic, the health benefits. In general, cash is dirty. The spread of viruses and other illnesses can be greatly halted when germs aren't being spread through cash. 
But some of the cons, the, the main downfalls of going to a cashless society include security, which, well, at least here in Australia, they are working on. Should your bank account get hacked, you wouldn't have any additional funds until it's cleared up. And just on spending habits, some may have trouble saving money when physical cash isn't leaving their wallets. There's always the issue of tech problems and glitches. And of course, the digital paper trails. All transactions would be easy to track, and this could be something that frequent cash users won't like. Now, on the list of uh, what corepay.net says is the future cashless countries, on the top of the list is Sweden. They are virtually cash-free now, a cashless society. Then there's Finland, China, South Korea, the United Kingdom, Australia, the Netherlands, and Canada. Now, something my friend didn't know about when I said that, you know, Americans still deal with a lot of checks, he assumed that they would be further advanced in going cash-free, but I think probably because of the size of the nation and, you know, stick to their guns, like literally, they don't really want to go cash-free. A study from the European Payments Council showed that cash transactions in Sweden only accounted for about 1% of Sweden's GDP in 2019, with cash cash withdrawals steadily declining by about 10% a year. While consumers are generally happy, those struggling financially or technologically still continue to rely on cash. Now, while I am absolutely in favour of going as a cashless society, it's up to people like me and governments who want to push their countries forward into a cash-free society that we educate people on some of the things that they may have concerns about. It's like, best to ask. Don't just guess and say, well, it's not safe. It's like, well, yeah, nothing is safe. You could walk down the street and someone could steal your wallet or your purse, but it doesn't stop you from going out, does it? Or at least it shouldn't. Now, while it doesn't mention in this story when it was originally posted, it was actually updated last year. It does say that uh, it's predicted that most Australians would have a smartphone by 2020. So that would indicate this story probably came out 2019 at the latest. It says that while Australia is a bit behind other countries mentioned in the list, remember, that's like five years ago. However, it is definitely worth the mention. We are currently seeing Australia start to digitize most of its economy. I would like to see an updated list of where Australia is now. I can't imagine that we are still in sixth place. Corey talks with Corey O'Connor. Tell me, have you heard of the term buzzers? I thought it was just that, you know, that sort of thing, but apparently not. ABC News Australia has put out a story recently about the inside world of Indonesia's social media buzzers cashing in from pushing 2024 election propaganda. Because yes, that's what we make a business out of these days, uh, pushing lies on other people. Well, with the chance to make an extra $10,000 a month, Robert has no issue pushing the agendas of presidential candidates on social media or slipping money to journalists to publish stories in their favour. It is pure business, according to Robert. Now, from this story, Robert, who chose to not use his real name, was once a journalist himself blogging for a prominent Indonesian news outlet. Now, whenever elections roll around, he dips into the business of buzzing. Buzzing is something that we'll no doubt hear more and more about 
over the coming months as the lead up to the American election in November. Well, it's a fast growing industry in Indonesia and across Southeast Asia, which involves individuals and groups being paid to create and share political propaganda online. Over the past decade, armies of buzzers have been promoting candidates and party issues or creating hoaxes and disinformation. Of course, we all know Donald Trump likes to keep that in-house. He's the one who's pushing the hoaxes and the misinformation and the out-and-out lies. But Robert, who has been moonlighting as a buzzer since Indonesia's 2014 elections, says this year the industry has become much slicker and professional. I'm sorry, I just cannot be happy for that. There are big bucks to be made, apparently, and the tactics that he has shared show how difficult it can be to spot buzzer content. And with Indonesia's social media usage among the highest in the world, there are concerns buzzers are threatening democracy and could impact the February 14 presidential election in Indonesia. Buzzers may use fake accounts, for instance, posing as an Indonesian housewife who shares lifestyle tips, then talks about how a party's policies have improved her life as a young mother. This account existed under the name Janda on Twitter during the 2019 presidential election. The real person behind the account, a middle-aged man, told Reuters at the time that the content his team created backing President Joko Widodo's re-election campaign was reaching at least a million people a week. Posts are liked and shared by a network of buzzers and hashtags are commonly used to further amplify messages and help content go viral. But back to Robert, he describes his role as an operator who decides on themes, manages teams of graphic designers and video editors to create content, then finds the best distribution channels. Buzzing, he says, is a job that's about collaborating with others. They can't do it individually. We all know how scouts like to be prepared, but Robert has learned how to best leverage buzzing as a business and has a bank of content ready to go to suit various client needs. Past clients have included volunteer groups working on behalf of ministers in the Widodo government. Often marketing agencies will act as a mediator between political players and buzzers and private companies can also be involved. When it comes down to it, it's it's not so much about, no, well, I want this person in power because of what I can get out of it. it. It really just, let's boil it down to, it comes to money. Social media was awash with hoax stories about President Widodo, including images that claimed to prove he was a devil-worshipping punk in his youth. Earlier this month, the Ministry of Communication said hoaxes were increasing. It had handled more than 200 hoaxes spread across nearly 3,000 posts on Facebook, X, Instagram and TikTok, warning all three presidential candidates were being targeted. As the world's third largest democracy decides who will succeed President Widodo, Robert has been upping the prices on buzzing services. Mm, The more I read into this Robert, the more I dislike him intensely. Robert hopes no candidate will win a majority in next month's Indonesian election, which will lead to a runoff election so the battle would last longer and he can charge more for his work. Robert said in 2019, a group affiliated with a presidential candidate offered him more than 100 million rupiah, that's about $9,750 Australian a month, to post content across all major social media platforms using his established network. 
Sadly, it's a promising business. Buzzers are entrepreneurs who have learned that they can make good money from this, and so they are starting their own businesses. Apparently, even in non-election years, the state employs buzzers. Analysts say that there has been growing public resistance and awareness of the dirty politics on social media, with netizens frequently criticising buzzers, referring to them as a virus. Indeed they are. Digital literacy has been flagged as one way to spot buzzers and misinformation, but some say that responsibility should not be falling on citizens. The problem is that elites who are paying for these buzzers and the Silicon Valley companies who do not do enough to crack down on this kind of content on their platforms are to blame. Just finally, a spokesperson from TikTok Indonesia's trust and safety team has told local media there that the platform, which boasts around 125 million users, was working with authorities to tackle the surge of fake news. Corey Talks. With Corey O'Connor. That old saying of money makes the world go round, it also makes election campaigns travel along as Joe Mentum increases. Joe Biden's campaign touts nearly $100 million in a fundraising haul. Just in the past three months, President Biden's re-election campaign has raised over $97 million and has $117 million on hand, a record for any Democrat ever at this point in the election cycle. And the campaign has raised a whopping $235 million since the campaign launched. About 97% of all donations were less than $200, with an average donation of $41.88 American. The Biden campaign also touts a large number of recurring donors. There are 130,000 people who have pledged to give monthly to his re-election efforts. The president's incredible fundraising haul is expected to crush that of all other candidates in the race, including Donald Trump. And unlike Trump, Biden will be putting the cash to use in critical swing states around the country, not using it to pay his skyrocketing legal bills. The Biden-Harris 2024 campaign manager Julie Chavez-Rodriguez says that the numbers of this historic haul, proudly powered by strong and growing grassroots enthusiasm, sends a clear message the team Biden-Harris coalition knows the stakes of this election and is ready to win in November. Now, the reason why I'm mentioning in this podcast of these staggering numbers for the Biden-Harris re-election campaign this year is that people are giving towards these candidates to support the push for their message. I'm thinking when it comes to elections, we shouldn't be raising money. It it should be based on facts, not who has the most amount of money to spread the most amount of news, or in the case of Donald Trump, the most amount of misinformation. I mean, already the public think that uh, money is what drives politics. And this fundraising for the 2024 election in the US just goes to show that it really is about money. I mean, don't get me wrong. I know this election is absolutely critical. Joe Biden has to win. The world, not just America, the world cannot deal with with another Trump presidency, because I think we're pretty much on the same page, uh, you know, those who can actually take in facts as a low, as opposed to bullshit, uh, that it would be the final presidency because Trump would want to be president for life. 
And by the looks of him lately, I I don't think that would be a long life, but still dangerous. Now, no doubt there are laws in place about fundraising and uh, making sure that it's all above board. There are similar rules here in Australia. Seems to always be a way around it that you can raise money and, and raising that money just because you've got the most amount of money in the hands of someone like Donald Trump, for instance, in America, that money can be put to a lot of uh, dangerous misinformation campaigns and out and out lies. I guess for me, it's Maybe not so much about the money, but, well, back to Australia now, there doesn't need to be truth in political advertising. You can pretty much say whatever you like. And I don't understand why it's like that, because there are rules about advertising here in Australia. Say, for instance, on television, you can't advertise um, alcohol in children's viewing time. There are also other rules about making false claims about your products Why should politics be treated any differently? Why should all the rules be paused just because of politics and an election? Links to all the resources from this episode of Corey Talks can be found in the show notes. With Australia Day now passed for another year, so to the annual controversy of the date, the flag, and who knows what else will be put forward by those trying to divide the nation. I didn't put together anything about Australia Day this year. I've done it in the past, and it seems many just won't accept that the day that they hold near and dear where Australia became a nation is not actually the day Australia became a nation. Many can't accept the heartache it causes in Indigenous Australians. And to be honest, I can't take much more of the absolute racist bullshit put forward by sections of the media and conservative politicians, particularly this year with the pile-on of a supermarket chain because it wasn't financially viable to keep stocking Australia Day merchandise as the desire by customers for it has dwindled. All the other nonsense about the same supermarket chain by a Sydney radio station in relation to the Aboriginal flag, which is apparently completely baseless. It's shameful and embarrassing, and Australia, we need to do better. Links and contact details on the website. bio.link forward slash Corey Talks.